Hello. Hey, how's it going? It's going pretty good. What are you up to today? Oh, man. Well, it, we're recording on a Sunday, which is weird for us. So, you know, we went to church, we uh, hung out as a family, watched a little AGT, and now I'm talking to you. Nice. I took a nap. So Sunday we do chores. We're very good Christians and we do a lot of resting on Sunday. So we go to church, rest, and then we get all our chores done. So I just finished making sure that my son had properly mowed the lawn. Oh, nice. Hey, that's good yeah. stuff. Yeah. So what's on your mind? Well, I want to talk about reading. Uh, we talk about reading a lot. We read a lot of the same books, but we also read some books that I would say might be not necessarily controversial, but at the very least, uh, we read a very particular brand of books. So I would love to talk about what books you read, why you read them, what makes for a good book, and kind of your general philosophy of what makes your reading list and what doesn't. That's awesome. I was realizing just today that of all the things we've ever talked about about reading, and we talk about reading all the time, I don't know that we've ever asked this question of each other. Why do you read? And what an important question, right? Yeah, right. I guess it is what keeps us coming back to it all the time. It'd probably be good to think through what exactly that is. Yeah. Well, and this is a major deal for us. I stalk you on Goodreads. <laughs> Same. Um, I totally stalk you as well. So we're going to use 2021 as an example year for one very important reason. And that is because it's the only year I've ever read more than you. Oh, jeez, uh, You're going to have to rub that in. <laughs> so to speak of why it's such an important conversation, you read 14,128 pages last year. 40 books, almost a book a week. Yeah. I read almost 16,000, again, more, and that's important because it's literally the only time that has ever happened. But <laughs> I read almost 16,000 pages, 38 books. Put that all together. We are reading a lot. Yeah. So it drives the question, why? Yeah. Let me preface by saying I read almost exclusively nonfiction. I read a lot of philosophy. I read a lot of theology. I read a lot of psychology and just kind of general and history, biography, all of these types of things. I read a very little bit of fiction. So most of the time when I'm coming to a book, I'm coming to learn something. And I'm usually trying to learn something from an expert in that field. So that's usually what brings me to the table to read a book is to, is to learn something. But what about you? Yeah, absolutely. So I would break this down into, I have two categories of reading, uh, fiction and nonfiction. And depending on the year, one is bigger than the other, typically. Um, so for example, last year, the only reason I read more than you is because I read probably 75 or 80% of what I did read was fiction, which is very unusual for me. I read, depending on the year, a lot of those same kind of categories you were describing, whether it's history, biography, philosophy, church growth, leadership, spiritual growth, all those kinds of things. And then on the flip side of things, I read a ton of science fiction and fantasy. And 
I read the nonfiction stuff for similar reasons. I want to grow. I read the science fiction fantasy stuff really because it's a primary way of relaxing. Hmm. Uh, I have noticed that the balance of fiction to nonfiction in my life indicates in large measure the degree of stress in my life. The higher the stress level, the less nonfiction I read. Or not necessarily just the level of stress, but the number of things I am thinking about or processing in my external life, if that is high enough, I don't want to be processing more thoughts internally. And so I turn to nonfiction. Uh, Excuse me, I turn to fiction, science fiction, that kind of stuff. So I suspect that for most of our conversation here, we are going to jettison the fiction stuff as much as I adore science fiction and fantasy. And I will throw this one thought in that I think having a well-developed imagination is a wildly important part of growing and a wildly important part of following Jesus. And I think that reading fiction helps that. You're absolutely right. And I know that I've historically not read a lot of fiction, but you always have. Like, that's something you've done since childhood on through. And when Mm -hmm. we started becoming friends, it was you that was teaching me the importance of story and the importance of what fiction can do for the formation of your mind. And I have taken that to heart, and I've made it a discipline, oddly enough, a discipline to read fiction books because of that very thing. And I can feel my imagination, my uh, creativity growing because of that. So I do think fiction has a very prominent place in a reading repertoire, but I agree with you for the purposes of this conversation, a general philosophy, if you will, of reading, probably the, the nonfiction is really what we're going to be talking about. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I could come up with 15 reasons why fiction is great to read, but you're right. That's going to be, let's leave that aside for now, unless I can creatively come up with reasons to bring it into the conversation, despite the fact that I'm not supposed to. But you said you read to grow. Yeah, I do. And so I'm often going to a book to learn something I've never learned before, or to have my thinking challenged in a new way. Either that's because this author is thinking thoughts that are new to me, and I need to test them out and uh, you know hear from that author and absorb that new knowledge. Or it's an author that has a diametrically opposed viewpoint that I, mm. uh, I think has value in some way that I need to grow in, I need to be stretched in. Or there is another category, and that is, hey, this is a really popular idea right now. This is something that other people are thinking about and talking about, and I want to be conversant with the issue. And so I'll read a book related to that. So, But again, all of that, I think, is a piece of growth. Even though we read some of the same types of books, we read various authors to, to balance out each view. Yeah, absolutely. No, you know, it's funny. You just, you said how you're sometimes looking for the author who has the diametrically opposed view. And this, this builds into one of my thoughts about life in general, which is that Stephen Covey, uh, Seven Habits of a Highly Effective Leader, which is of course a book I think we've both read. Have you read this? I actually don't know if you've read this. I am ashamed to say I've never read it. 
All right. It's okay. I will pray for you. Um, <laughs> you Pentecostals. You know, you can repent uh, once we're off off the air here. But uh, one of the things that Stephen Covey says in his seven habits, one of his seven habits is seek first to understand. And in a lot of my reading, I am trying to understand people who are different from me. You know, I want to go into life assuming that people who think differently from the way that I think, number one, make sense, and number two, have something to offer me. This is a really important set of assumptions that I'm, I was realizing as you said that I think is wildly important for a mature person who wants to be a growing person. I don't want to shut myself off from people who think differently from me. And I don't want to assume that everybody who thinks differently from me is stupid. <laughs> I want to assume, I, I remember saying this to my wife uh, when we were first married years ago, and I've had this conversation over the years with many, many other people, but it started with my wife. She would say, well, I don't know that my what I think about this makes any sense. And people often say this, they'll say, well, I, I don't know that my opinions make sense. First of all, if you know anything about my wife, my wife is a really thoughtful, really well thought out, incredibly intelligent person. Mm -hmm. And I would say to her, let's assume it does make sense and see where that gets us. And inevitably, that would extend the conversation and I would learn and she would learn and it would be great. And I think... That's the, the heart and attitude that I often bring to reading is I'm going to assume you, the author, whoever you are, no matter how much I don't think I agree with you, I'm going to assume you make sense. And let's see where that assumption gets us. Yeah, I think that that is such a generous and good starting point for people that we assume are probably going to bring a, a, a new viewpoint. And I think mm -hmm. it's interesting, over the years, you and I have found ourselves to be more critical of people that are in our own camp. And so I think, for instance, of the book that you and I are both reading right now, Timothy Tennant's book um, about a theology of the body. And he's definitely somebody that we would both consider to be in our camp. I think he's the president of Asbury Theological Seminary. Is that true? Yep. And he was the missions guy at Gordon-Conwell when I was there. Yeah. So this is absolutely a guy that is in our camp. And I think in a lot of ways, he has written a pretty decent book, but we have been pretty critical of it. Because he's in our camp, he hasn't brought a lot of new thoughts to the table for us. He's repeated a lot of what our camp tends to say about these issues. And that is probably fine, but it's not what we came for. We came for new and deeper and more well-reasoned arguments than sometimes uh, we're getting. Now, I will say, just generally speaking, it's a great book, and he put together a chapter on the, a theology of being single that I thought was flat amazing. And for that alone, it's worth it to read that book. But Yeah, and a deep and a, a very helpful corrective to the marriage-centered view of spirituality that often is in our camp. Uh, yeah. I thought it was a great chapter, and but you're right. We are both more likely to be critical 
of people in the camp with us. And those often are in-house debates. It's not that I don't think Dr. Tennant is brilliant, amazing, worthwhile, valuable, or any of those things. It's that we are in the same camp, and so we can squabble a little bit because we're on the inside together. Yeah, yeah. Whereas, you know, you and I have both read some Richard Rohr, and he's not in either of our camps. He's a Catholic priest that sits very close to, if not over the line, of universalism. And so we would not agree with him theologically on a variety of topics. However, he brings something about spiritual growth that we find very, very valuable. And so we're willing to go looking for those unique nuggets that an author that is not in our camp will bring and be very willing to set aside all of the other stuff that we clearly disagree with in order to get that one nugget. And so it's a very different approach for people inside our camp versus people outside our camp. Okay, so with that inside-outside language, I want to ask you uh, a quiz question here. Is Greg Boyd in our camp or not in our camp? Man, that is so <laughs> that is so hard because Greg Boyd has come to mind a lot. This is a person that has been deeply uh, impactful to both of us, and yet all of our evangelical friends would say, "Oh my goodness, no, he is very much on the outside." As uh, the open theism, how would you define open theism? Yeah, so. Um... And I'm nervous to define open theism for Boyd because Boyd has the most nuanced view of this that I don't think he would call himself necessarily an open theist. But the idea that the future holds many possibilities, but that because of the nature of time, those possibilities are indeterminate. So the future is not fixed yet. And therefore, what God knows when he knows the future is not the fixed reality of what is going to happen, but he knows the potential realities of what may happen. This, of course, trickles into a lot of different theological views. Boyd would say God can determine the future. And so when he makes, for example, a prophecy in the Old Testament, he can ensure that that prophecy comes to pass. But that is an unusual intervention in the system rather than the normal way in which God knows things. How's that sound? I think you're right. And we'd actually have to ask Boyd if if you did justice to his theology. But it is that type of thing where a lot of people in our camp would hear that and say, well, that's not correct. You know, that doesn't fit with my theological perspective. Therefore, Greg Boyd is out. And that makes him outside the camp. And mm. yet there's so much else that he has to say in relationship to that and in relationship to a variety of other things where I'm like, oh, no, this guy is absolutely in our camp. And so I myself don't know quite where to put him. But I think that speaks to the the broader philosophy of reading and this willingness to suspend judgment and say, okay, even if we disagree on a particular issue, or maybe even not disagree, like, I don't know, you've half convinced me, or you've half not convinced me. I don't know. I'm still wishy-washy. I get that you're pushing this view. I'm willing to suspend judgment on that issue in order to hear what else you have to say. Yeah, exactly. I think the reason I brought him up is because 
if somebody were listening to our conversation, they could very easily think that we hold very, very strongly to this insider-outsider perspective on who's a, you know, in quotes, a real Christian and who's not, Uh, whereas that would be almost diametrically opposed to the point we're trying to make, which is that on some level, I'm not asking that question. Mm. I'm asking, what can you teach me? What can you help me understand better? Or what can you challenge my thoughts on? And those questions make for a broader reading pool. Uh, Like you said, uh, you know, I grabbed a bunch of books knowing we were going to talk about this and Roar is in my list as well. Roar's book, Everything Belongs, about contemplative prayer was deeply formative for me. I think I literally read it in three and a half days Mm. because it was the first time I'd ever read anything by him and I thought it was brilliant. But yeah, I think that there's something I'm looking for that broadens out my perspective on reading. Which brings me to this question then for you. How, what is, you? I think you said this a couple minutes ago too, what is a good book? <laughs> yeah, so just real basic, am I interested in the topic? It's got to start there. Otherwise, I'm not as likely to start it or finish it. But I do a lot of stalking on Goodreads, as you say. So before I read a book, I will read the reviews on Goodreads. I will read, uh, you know, I'll look at the star rating. I'll look at the synopsis of the book. And what am I looking for? I'm looking for, as I said before, kind of an expert in their field or somebody that has something rich, valuable, well thought out to say. And that to me makes for a good book. And so it, Am I interested in the topic? And is the person I'm going to sit down and listen to worth hearing out because they have mm. put some thought into this? Um, so, and I'm looking for a well-constructed book, well-written. They've organized it well. They've articulated their thoughts effectively, all of those types of things. And I can, I'm looking for those things as I go through the reviews. And then again, Sometimes the endorsements will help me understand that. There are some great scholars in certain fields that if they've endorsed a book, okay, now I know this is this person has some chops and it makes me trust their opinions or that they have the right to speak. So I'm looking for that. I mean, because right now, especially in our digital age, uh, you know, some could even accuse us of doing this. Anybody can set up a podcast. Anybody can set up a blog. Anybody can self-publish a book. Thoughts and words are cheap these days. And so I don't want to read cheap thoughts. I want to read well-crafted thoughts and try to learn from them. So that's what makes a good book for me. But what about you? We have slightly different approaches to reading in this regard. You do a lot of preparatory work to decide whether or not the book is worth your time. And the flip side of that is that you almost never start a book without finishing it. (laughs) That is also because I am immensely stubborn. Yes, that's true. That is true. But I do think there's probably a correlation there. You've done a lot of work. You know you're stubborn and your reading approach takes into account yourself as a reader. Hmm. And so you want to make sure it's worth getting into because you know you're going to go all the way. I am perfectly willing to read two chapters of a book and be like, eh, I'm bored. And so I do a lot less prep work. I will often do nothing more than read the title and 
maybe the back of the book and the author's name. But I was noticing beyond that, I often look at the publisher because the publisher tells me that thing you just said. Is this a real book? Yeah. You know, I have published a book. It is on Amazon. You can get it for 10 bucks. I actually think it's pretty good. My last name is spelled K-A-N-S-I-E-W-I-C-Z. Please go look it up. But um, <laughs> That was the most shameless plug. It was so unexpected. That was hilarious. You're welcome. But, uh, but I'm just some hack, right? Uh, which is why IVP or Zondervan were not interested in my book. I actually never asked. But, you know, I look at, on the flip side, books like... Greg Boyd's books, which are often published by IVP, or uh, some of the biographies that I love that are published by Bantam or Random House, uh, real publishing companies. What that says to me is somebody decided this book was worth reading and worth publishing. They're willing to take a shot on this. That doesn't guarantee it's a good book, but it does at least tell me something. I have come to realize there's a difference between what IVP publishes and what Zondervan publishes. And you kind of get a flavor for the different publishing companies. And that actually helps me. So I look at that. Um, but I was thinking about biographies as well. And in biography, I also think about in biography or autobiography, do I want to become more like this person? I read biographies and autobiographies in hopes that something will rub off. So not everything. So, for example, I've read a lot about Winston Churchill. And there are a host of things about Winston Churchill that I don't ever want to rub off on me. Mm -hmm. He was sometimes just a jerk. The way he responded to his uh, subordinates was awful. But on the flip side of things, he was exceptionally courageous, exceptionally brave, exceptionally value-driven in the way he acted as a leader. He was one of the great communicators in the 20th century. I want some of Winston Churchill's leadership to rub off on me. Uh, and so I read all about him, hoping I'll just become just a tiny little bit like Winston Churchill. Yeah, I agree. And I read biographies in much the same way. But I'm also just super fascinated by people's stories, and I'm super fascinated by history. And I think in order to be a good theologian and to think critically about how to apply the Bible to real life requires that we be good students of society and of history and how we got to where we are today. And that's some of the things that brings me to history and to biography Biography is great because it just gives you a real in-depth look at somebody's life, and you almost get to see the world unfold around that individual. So I think it teaches me that people's stories matter. And, you know, so if I learned from you the fact that fiction helps your creative mind, my wife has ingrained in me from the day I met her until today, people's stories matter. That, that's something she must say at least every single week. And that's what I love about biography is it gets me up close and personal with a real living person. And that probably speaks a little bit to my interest in psychology and counseling, because I want to know what makes a person tick and why they respond the way they do in their historical setting and in the 
things that they're experiencing. So that's a little more of why I come to biography and history. Yeah, you hit this really good point that I I don't know that I would have said, but I think you're absolutely right. In history more broadly, rather than just biography or autobiography, I want my understanding of the present to be informed by a knowledge of the past. Yes. Uh, So, for example, a, a really concrete example, in the last several election cycles, one of the things I have heard people say over and over again is, I can't believe how divisive the media is. The media has just fallen so far. The media used to be so great, and yet now they are just deeply partisan. As if that were a new thing. Yeah, yeah. But if you know anything about American history, the media has always been profoundly partisan and has been, if not equally, potentially more partisan than it is today. There are quotes from the media, even in the early era of American history, where they say horrible things about each other, and they do it with no qualms. And then they choose just to stop speaking to each other for decades because they just can't stand each other. Mm-hmm. It was deeply partisan then in both politics and the media. And when you understand that that was true, it makes it different to interpret the present moment. Does that make sense? Yeah. And you're exactly right. And I think that noticing that is important for understanding our present moment. But I think there's also noticing the way in which the authors we read also presents history in somewhat of a partisan way. Because Mm. history is never just cold, hard facts. It doesn't necessarily have to be so interpreted as, say, John Meacham, right? John Meacham's biographies, as you've said before to me, they try to make a point about the way this person lived their life. Mm-hmm. And so this, it's highly interpretive, and I don't necessarily disagree with his interpretations, but he's very baldly putting his thoughts out there with a, an angle in mind. Whereas other biographies are not as overt, and yet it can't help but be somewhat interpretive. And I think this has come to light in our country over the last few years, that the dominant class writes the history and gets to write the history in a way that suits the dominant class. And so Mm. you really have to go looking for a new angle, a new perspective. Just starting the other day, I picked up this uh, new book, Cast, subtitled The Origins of Our Discontents by uh, Isabel Wilkerson. And I'm, I'm, I'm just starting it, and so I don't have a lot of thoughts yet, but um, she is a Black author giving a perspective on American history and, being, and telling that history through the lens of like Nazi Germany and through India's caste system to show how similar and, and how we can understand our own history through those lenses. And I need, just like we were talking about before, this may not be the normal thing that I would read or the normal way I would construct history, I need this correctiveness. And so whether I agree with everything she has to say or not, it's at least going to pull me into a more balanced perspective of history. Yeah, absolutely. So here's the next question I want to ask you. 
How does your being a Christian influence the way that you read? On some level, I feel like that's a, almost a dumb question. But it's a question I don't know that we've ever actually talked about before. And so I'm just curious what your thoughts on that are. Go. <laughs> Boy, talk about putting me on the spot. Well, I feel, it's funny, I feel a little almost insecure asking the question because the question has been presented to us so often in very black and white terms. If you're a good Christian, you're reading this stuff. If you're not a good Christian, you're reading this stuff. Christians read this kind of material. And as we have come to believe in a different kind of approach to reading that we discussed earlier, I think we have stepped away from those kind of black and white, good Christians read this, good Christians don't read this. But I don't know that I've ever been able to articulate a framework to replace that. Yeah. You know, and so on some level, I, I find myself, I'm, it, it genuinely makes me a little insecure to ask the question, which is weird and funny to me. Well, because this is just a brand new conversation, right? We haven't had this conversation before. I don't know that I have a perfectly articulate answer, but here's the beginnings of the answer. And this, it's funny, we had a conversation, uh, we had a podcast actually about your rules and the things that you say all the time, and you've written them down. Uh, I've not taken the time to write them down, but I do have a, a number of sayings that I say all the time, and this is one of them. The truth has nothing to fear from inquiry. Mm. And so I think that is my general take on what to read. Are we making a genuine inquiry into the truth? So that's something I'm always trying to do. I'm trying to get underneath. And that's why I feel like I can attack my own camp so strongly it's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, guys, I know I've heard that line my whole life. Let's dig underneath it a little bit. Let's go deeper. Let's ask ourselves why. And let's challenge some of our own assumptions a little bit. And so I, I'm looking for really good articulate authors to challenge my assumptions, teach me something I haven't thought before, whether they're in my camp or not, because at the end of the day, the truth has nothing to fear from that. What is true yes. is true is true, no matter how we explore it, challenge it, think about it, whatever. Truth remains perfectly intact, and only my perception of the truth changes. Now, it uh, requires that I be thoughtful in engaging every topic and evaluating it. And this is uh, probably another conversation we'll need to have at some point, which is the authority of Scripture really becomes this lens through which I can challenge and uh, you know engage with these various ideas. So that's my philosophy of reading as a Christian. Reading as a Christian okay. is an exercise in inquiry through the lens of Scripture. Yes. Well, and you know, what you just said brings together my thoughts so much more clearly than I had ever had them before. Here's what I think my philosophy of being a Christian reader means. And the only way I can offer it is in contrast to what I grew up thinking I was supposed to think. 
I think I was taught, or I thought I was taught, being a Christian reader means I evaluate whether the thing itself that I'm about to read, the media I'm about to intake, whether it is appropriately Christian, and therefore I decide whether or not I'm going to read it. So the question is, is it Christian? I think being a Christian reader doesn't ask any questions about the the media I'm about to intake. It asks questions about me as the reader. What does it mean for me to read as a Christian? So I am going to read in a way that is consistent with Jesus' command to love my enemies. I'm going to read in a way that is consistent with Jesus, with Paul's teaching that the fruit of the Spirit is joy and love and peace and kindness and gentleness and patience and all of those things. I think that's the issue. I want to flip the idea on its head. A Christian isn't defined by whether or not they read that thing or don't read that thing. A Christian is defined by themselves and how they do their reading, and they do it in a spirit that is consistent with Jesus. Does that make sense? It does. And I think that gets to the heart of the Christian faith a lot better than the other way around. And I think this is the way we often get it mixed up. It's very easy to take Christian principles and apply them to everyone else and say, this is the way you all ought to be, rather than, okay, this is how I need to be formed by the gospel, and I need to interact with the world as a changed and transformed individual because of the gospel, and that changes how I interact with all those around me, including authors. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. Man, that may have galvanized my thinking on a topic more than I can express. It's not a question of, is it a Christian book? It's a question of, am I a Christian reader? It's not a question of, is this a Christian show? It's a question of, am I a Christian watcher? It's not a question of, is this a Christian song? It's a question of, am I a Christian musician or listener or audience member or whatever, podcast reader, YouTube watcher? Am I a Christian while I'm doing it? And does that flow into my character? Yeah. Yeah. But I want to make sure we get a chance to share other thoughts as well. That's always a part of our practice and habits in our friendship. And so I just wanted to kind of take a solid left turn. Any closing thoughts on this before I ask you about random thoughts that you've had throughout the week? No, no. I I would love to share my thought. In fact, I owe you a debt of gratitude for the source of my thought. You know, again, with uh, exploring parts of the world that are outside of our camp, you and I have both engaged with the Book of Common Prayer as a means Mm. of connecting with God. And that is, neither of us are Anglican. And so you showed me how they made an app that is and enables you to read through the Book of Common Prayer in a much easier way because to, to read through it, you're just jumping from page to page and it's very, very confusing. But I was praying through the morning office a couple of days ago and it was talking about the Exodus and God's provision of the Israelites in the desert where he provided them manna. And they were supposed to go gather, I think it's an omer, which was just great because it says, oh, yeah, and an omer is a tenth of an ephah or something like that. I'm like, oh, thanks. That was helpful. Well, back to the idea of the translatability of the gospel, right? <laughs> yes, exactly. So anyway, they, they're supposed to grab an omer of 
mana every day. And if they gather more than that, it spoils, except the day before the Sabbath, in which case they can gather twice as much. I loved that image as I read through it this week, because that is God's provision for the Sabbath. And Sabbath keeping is not something that I did very well prior to going into seminary, but I knew that working full-time and going to school full-time and having three kids and a wife and a couple of dogs and a bunny and life and cars, and I knew I was going to be way too busy to not keep a Sabbath. And so I've made that a discipline in my life since going to seminary. And it's challenging. It is challenging to set aside all work for 24 hours because there's this perception, I've got so much to do. Like literally, today is Sunday. We're recording on a Sunday for a change. And I have so much to do. I have papers to write. I have books to read. I have all kinds of things going on at work. I have things to do, and it is a discipline to just stop and just say, no, I'm not going to do it. So it was an amazing confirmation of the Sabbath to see that God provides for the Sabbath. He enables you to keep that Sabbath because he finds it valuable, and he wants to meet you in that. So he's going to provide. It doesn't necessarily mean you're going to get everything done. Maybe you're just taking on too much and something's going to fall by the wayside as a result. That's still not a reason to not keep the Sabbath. So anyway, just God's provision for the Sabbath was wildly encouraging to me this week. That's awesome. And can I say, uh, I love the fact that we both have been doing this particular approach to a devotional life. It is very fun for me to know when I'm reading whatever I'm reading in the Book of Common Prayer, that you are also doing it. I just love that. That actually does make it richer for me. Mm. Not in a way that, you know, if you ever do something else, that's fine too. Sure. But uh, the Book of Common Prayer, I just flipped it open on the app, and it ends, the office ends with this prayer. Almighty God, you have given us grace at this time with one accord to make our common supplication to you. And... I think about the fact that there are thousands of Christians all over the world, including you, who are praying the same words I'm praying. Yes. And that is amazing to me. I just love it. I think about the exact same thing as I'm as saying that portion of the prayer. Uh, so that's cool. All right, your turn. Tell me all about your thoughts. Thoughts. All right. So I was at a conference this week and... Louis Giglio was speaking, who has been in leadership like since I was in college, but he was talking about one of the stories in the Bible that I have heard a million times, and he shared a nugget from a detail that I had never caught before, and it's the story of the anointing of David when Samuel goes to Bethlehem to anoint David as king. And of course, you know the story. Jesse brings out all of his sons, save David. And every time Samuel thinks, oh, it's going to be that guy. Oh, it's not that guy. Oh, it's going to be that guy. And oh, it's not. And then Jesse runs out of sons and nobody has been anointed king. But God told Samuel, go and anoint one of Jesse's sons to be king. And so 
presumably in some level of confusion, Samuel says, so do you have any other sons? What's going on here? And uh, Jesse says, well, I've got this one other son, but he's out in the field. And of course, being out in the field doesn't mean like in the backyard. It means <laughs> like being outside of town in the wilderness, who knows how far away. And it's not like he's got a cell phone. I don't exactly know where he is. He's like off somewhere with the sheep. I don't know. And the detail that I'd never caught that Giglio talked about was Samuel then says, okay, go get him and we'll all stand and wait. If he were like in the backyard, not a big deal. But when we're saying the guy is outside of town in the wilderness, who knows exactly where, just someplace where he can take the sheep, that could be an hour. Two hours, three hours, four hours, five hours of just standing there. The only thing that seems to make sense there is that Samuel has now figured out the obvious truth. There is only one son left. None of these guys are going to be the next king, which means that guy is going to be the king. And when the king walks in, I will not be sitting. And if that means I have to stand for the next five hours to wait for the king to walk in, totally okay he's the king and just that one detail of we will stand and wait is so powerful i just loved it yeah that's really good because i don't think that we in our american society do waiting very well and i don't think in and particularly in our spiritual lives we don't do waiting very well and so I know I approach prayer with the idea that when I show up to pray, God's going to meet me there in that moment, in some powerful way, whatever. Whatever I feel like I need from God is supposed to happen as I'm praying. And I think— Yeah, and God better show up in my 15 minutes that I've allotted him. (laughs) Yeah, that's exactly right. Yes, And what I'm actually learning and what I really appreciate about the Book of Common Prayer is the fact that you have to show up every single day. You show up and you pray these written prayers every day, and God will do something in you over time. And Mm. that's a very different experience than, I got 15 minutes, I'm going to pray through my stuff, you better show up, and I better feel like you've been here, otherwise I'm out. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. Uh, All right. Well, you posted on social media this week the which Josh question, and you asked which Josh grew up in Boring, Oregon. Well, now I'm giving it away. Which Josh grew up in a town called Boring? And the answer is me, uh, Josh from Oregon. There is a town called Boring, Oregon. And I think we had a conversation recently. You just learned this, didn't you? Yes, I did not know this. I would have thought I knew every place you had lived over the 20 some odd years that we've been talking for hours every week. And yet this was new information for me. It's important for me to remember that boring is in your DNA. (laughs) It does explain a lot, doesn't it? (laughs) Oh my goodness. I'm assuming that you have kept that from me on purpose because now it's just 
cannon fodder. <laughs> yeah. So we'll start a podcast and I'll just put it out there for the whole world. Yeah. But yeah, no, I, I did grow up in boring. People always ask, is it boring? And the answer is, I don't know. I was a kid. I grew up playing around outside. We lived, it was about a quarter mile long driveway off the road. And on either side of that driveway, on one side was a um, cattle farm. And on the other side was a pig farm. And you can imagine the smells in the summer going up our driveway to the top of the hill where our house was. And I grew up running around in the woods, way away from everything, checking on the cows and pigs as needed. But um, I don't know, it was a great way to grow up as a little guy. I enjoyed running around outside. So no, it wasn't boring for me. And it was so close to Portland that if you wanted the big town experience, you know, you could have gotten it. But what kid cares about that? Yeah, exactly. Right. Well, Hey, can I pause and just talk to our listeners for just a second here? Please. Because I want to invite them into the conversation. We talked all about books and why we read today and uh, what does it mean to be a Christian reader and what is a good book. And I want to invite anyone who is listening specifically to check out our Reddit thread, r slash on the phone with Josh. And I'm going to post all these questions there. And I want to hear your answers. Really, we want to hear your answers. We want to hear what books you like to read, why you like to read. We want to hear what you think a good book is. Uh, We want to hear what you think is the intersection of being a Christian and being a reader. And I I even want to broaden this out. This really is about growing. Some of you may not be readers. Some of you may have other ways that you seek to grow whether it's other podcasts that you listen to or YouTube channels that you listen to or sermon preachers that you listen to or whatever. And I'm, I'm curious to hear it all. How is it that you grow? But more than that, why do you listen to or read what you listen to or read? That's what I think we're looking for this week. Uh, that's going to be a great conversation. I can't wait to find out what people have to say. So yeah, please uh, join us on r slash on the phone with Josh. Let's talk. All right. So are we on for next week? Oh, man. I can't wait. Yeah. Can't wait to talk to you next week. All right. Then I'll talk to you then. Okay. Bye. All right. Bye.